My name is Yusuf Hassan, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from Chatham House. Welcome to Africa Aware, a brand new podcast series from the Africa program based at Chatham House. And to introduce this podcast series, I'm very lucky to be joined by Assistant Director of the Africa program, Tigisti Amare. Hello, Tigi. Hello, Yusuf. Delighted to be joining you for this. So, Tigi, I generally thought of no one better to explain why we started this podcast series. I'll let you explain. Well, Yusuf, in the Africa program at Chatham House, we pride ourselves on being a world-leading center for independent policy research and debate on Africa's politics and socioeconomic change. And we felt that launching a podcast series in order to better communicate to our global audience was a perfect way to begin our second century as a research institute. As our listeners may be aware, Chatham House celebrated its centenary last year, so 100 years of independent thinking. Through this podcast, we hope to bring together the best international experts to provide original analysis on issues pertinent to African states' national, regional, and international politics. So we want to tackle the big questions, but we also want to do this in a manner that is solution-oriented, solutions that are centered around African agency. In fact, the importance of African agency in international affairs has been the central theme for the Africa Programme's work last year as Chatham House marked its centenary. Well, Tiggy, like I said earlier, I couldn't put it better myself, and I'm sure our listeners are very excited at that prospect. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Yusuf. I am also very lucky to be joined by the director of the Africa Programme, Dr. Alex Vines. Hello, Alex. Hello, how are you doing? I'm well, I'm well. To begin the year, Dr. Alex wrote an expert comment available on the Chatham House website, of course, entitled, Africa's Road to Recovery in 2021 is a Fresh Start, which I would encourage everyone listening to this podcast to read. But Alex, as you mentioned in the piece, what are some of the key themes that anyone interested in Africa should look out for in 2021? Well, obviously, COVID-19 and the continent had its first wave last year. It's got a second wave that's now passing through in 2021. And that's going to have significant health impacts on the continent as well as economic ones. And there lies also the big challenge, I think, in 2021, how much of the year will be about just surviving COVID-19 and how much will be about economic recovery. And that, of course, depends very much also on the state of the global economy and how COVID is treated internationally. So what happens in Africa is very tied in with global patterns. I think also the, the other big issue for 2021 is democratic advance and development versus stagnation. There are a number of elections taking place this year. There's one that's just happened in Uganda, but Congo Brazzaville, Djibouti, Chad, Zambia, all of those look fairly predictable, maybe less so Somalia. And then there are some open elections where it would be very difficult to predict the results, and uh, Cape Verde would be a good example of that. Maybe right at the end of 2021 also, I think the elections in Gambia also, those will be an interesting one to watch. The big issue tied to the economy of the continent, obviously, is the rolling out of the African Free Continental Trade Area that became live on January the 1st this year. And then I think the issue 
that the international community is going to be very focused on, as well as African leaders, is debt. So there are a number of initiatives, including a G20 initiative backed by the International Monetary Fund and the Paris Club, which is the Debt Service Suspension Initiative. But they all just defer, basically, debt. They don't talk about debt cancellation. And I do think that we will see during the G20 presidency of Italy and the G7 presidency of the United Kingdom that there will be quite a significant debate about debt suspension versus debt cancellation. That's a massive issue. Alongside that, do you also see issues particularly around conflict and security or geopolitics influence in Africa? And what would your thoughts towards that? Certainly, the continent isn't stabilizing. There are significant reversals of security. The Sahel region will be an area of particular concern for West African states, but also their international partners. And I do think also that we're going to see increasing focus on East Africa and a real concern about the spreading of radical Islamic insecurity. Northern Mozambique, the province of Cabo de Gado, is a good example of that. That may not worsen, but it probably won't improve this year. In terms of geopolitics, there are a number of big summits that are taking place. The United Kingdom has, in January, held its second UK-Africa Investment Summit. It was a virtual affair But there are also big summits planned. The two that I think we should be focusing on are the Forum of China-Africa Cooperation, which will take place in Dakar, Senegal, later this year, but also the next EU-AU summit, which will be in Brussels. It was postponed from last year, but is scheduled for 2021. And I guess exactly when it will happen is dependent on COVID and how Europe recovers from the second wave of COVID. Thank you so much for that, Alex, for that concise but comprehensive roundup of Africa in 2021. And we're hoping across this series we'll be discussing these topics in detail. Therefore, I can only thank you so much for your time and I look forward to hosting you again over the coming episodes. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Yosef. Now, to move on to the interview segment of our podcast this week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Carlos Lopez on the topic of debt in Africa. Professor Carlos is currently a professor at the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance at the University of Cape Town and is the African Union's High Representative for Partnerships with Europe. He has occupied several leadership positions across the UN system, including Policy Director for Secretary General Kofi Annan and Executive Secretary of the UN Economic Commission for Africa. Professor Carlos, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Great. And actually, it's very useful to mention the fact that I was lucky enough to interview Professor Carlos at the beginning of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, and we held a discussion that's available on the Chatham House website on the economic implications of the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, that was at the beginning. And actually, I thought it'd be a useful place to start. Professor Carlos, we've seen almost a year of impact following COVID-19 and its effects, of course, in the economy of the world. And I'd love to hear your perspective on what you think its major effects on the African continent nearly a year on. Well, I must admit that some of the most uh, dramatic views about how the pandemic was going to affect Africa did not materialize. I anticipated it might be the case when we had the conversation then. And I think part of the reason is because we have been accustomed to very 
strong perspectives on Africa that are not grounded on real data and real evidence. So it is not really completely surprising that we have normally a correction of uh, very pessimistic predictions uh, regarding the continent. But this being said, when it comes to the economic side, actually the situation did not get worse than we could predict then, but it got quite bad, partly because the liquidity issues that were identified early on as necessary to tackle the socioeconomic impacts of the pandemic did not uh, really materialize. And I think Africa continues to be very much dependent on externalities that it does not control. And as a result, it's sort of the goodwill that defines whether Africa is going to do well or not in situations of crisis like the one we are facing. What we have witnessed is a tremendous effort that has been done to rescue the global economy by the central most important players, but that has not really translated into something a bit more meaningful insofar as Africa is concerned. In fact, not only are we at the end of the queue in terms of access to capital, access to finance, but what this year has proven is that we got less than normally we are accustomed to, which is exactly the opposite situation that most countries that have uh, stimulus packages uh, found themselves into. They got much more liquidity because they had to face the pandemic. In Africa, it was the opposite. That's, no, that's actually fascinating. I think hindsight, of course, is one of those things in an analysis that will be done years from now on, on how Africa reacted to COVID-19, especially from an economic perspective, I think will dominate books and, and chapters written um, years to come. And actually an element that I thought would be particularly interesting to explore is, are there any elements that have surprised you or any responses on the continent, at least from African sovereign nations that have surprised you in whether it be successfully or, or in a negative sense? Well, a couple of surprises. Uh, probably the most important is the fact that the response on the sanitary dimensions was quick, steadfast, and a lot of countries went into very restrictive social distancing measures, including complete lockdowns, way before they attained the levels of infections that we registered in countries that were supposed to have much better health systems. And that is explained logically by the fact that they were trying to avoid finding themselves in a situation they could not control. But they did so well, most of the countries, that eventually it contributed also for a very low infection rate in the continent. But this being said, we have now a second wave, which is being mentioned as something completely, uh, you know, problematic. But in fact, you know, coronavirus types uh, always have second, third, fourth waves. They have a wave per year. That's the normal scientific evidence. And therefore, there's absolutely no surprise in that score. But what normally we know is that the, the second wave is more infectious than the first one, but probably less lethal. This is also proven historically by the experience we have with previous pandemics. And Africa is quite exposed to pandemics because we had uh, the HIV AIDS, Ebola, just to mention two that have been quite devastating in the continent. So that was a surprise. The second surprise was the resilience of African economies, counting much more on domestic resources and much less on external support, probably because they didn't get that support. 
it was fascinating to see a number of countries in Africa, for instance, not wanting to discuss debt uh, relief or debt deletion, precisely because they didn't want to find themselves into that risk perception. Before uh, these developments that we have witnessed over the last two decades, that would have been unthinkable. Another surprise that I think was quite negative is the amount of capital that flew out of the continent, much more than I could have expected. And finally, the last surprise was remittances that were predicted to really go down by all the countries that depend very much on diaspora remittances. That did not actually not occur. We didn't have anything close to the predictions of the World Bank, which were between 20 and 30% reduction. They revised themselves their figures to 8%. That was the latest projection published by the World Bank. And I think it's going to be even probably less than 8%. So that was quite a surprise, which means that despite the difficulties that the African diaspora faced in the different countries of destination where they are located, they actually made an extra effort to help their families and their relatives in the countries of origin. So that that is quite remarkable as well. Indeed, all of those surprises or those insights you just said are are remarkable and ones that I look forward to seeing analysed, of course, by Chatham House and other analysts in the area. Actually, to go into the discussion of this interview, debt, and to immediately begin... Many people speak of a debt crisis in Africa, and I actually wanted to hear your perspective as an expert. Do you feel that this is an accurate portrayal of the situation on the ground? I think it's misleading to be talking about the debt crisis in Africa. There is a sovereign public debt crisis in the world. And if we take into account all countries in the planet, you will have a few exceptions. Countries that have been well endowed, manage very well their sovereign funds, You know, you can put in that category some Gulf countries, you can put Norway, you can put Singapore, but not many. The majority of the countries have actually increased the volumes of their sovereign public debt exponentially. And in that picture, the African countries are doing very little in relation to the rest. The global debt has trended up since the 1970s. It has reached about 230% of GDP by 2018. This is the world global sovereign debt. That has arisen particularly in the most developed countries, not in the least developed countries. In fact, if you look into the period between 2000 and 2010, that has also risen in the low income countries. It has risen to the point that now you have you know, gone from about 40-something percent of GDP, debt-to-GDP ratio, to around 50 by the end of 2010. And now, because of COVID and but also development since 2010, we are talking around 67% debt-to-GDP ratio in low-income countries. And I think Africa, of course, is part of this picture. And what is less mentioned is the fact that Africa doesn't have access to capital. Its capital markets are the least developed in the world. So it has to depend on resources and and, and mobilization of funding from abroad. And when it does it, it can basically use three mechanisms. One is concessional lending, mostly offered by international financial institutions. 
A second possibility is to go to the commercial debt, which is the one that normally we discuss along the Paris Club. And finally, the third possibility is to go into countries that are not practicing the Paris Club terms, are not concessional either, place themselves in the middle, and the key creditor in that space is China. You have others, but China is the largest. So when I hear that Africa is much indebted to China and is going into sort of overdrive when it comes to that, come on, let's see. The size of Africa's GDP has more than doubled since the year 2000. The available concessional funding since then, although it has increased, not even close to the the same doubling of the GDP size in terms of percentage availability, which basically means that Africans have to find and resource their development funding needs elsewhere. And that's what they are doing. And of course, it's more costly. Yes, it's costly because of the risk perceptions shooting up the commercial interest rates uh, quite high. And of course, you know, they have to go into whatever is better than the commercial terms. And China happens to be one of the available possibilities. So talking about debt crisis under these circumstances is a bit misleading. Because what we are witnessing is that the countries that have the most developed mature economies are the ones that have what we used to call concessional lending, which is between 0% and 1%. Now they can even get less than 0% for some instances, like the European Central Bank or the debt that is contracted by, by countries like the UK. So what is not available to Africa is that type of funding. And that's why they have to go into other possibilities. Yes, they have increased their debt to GDP ratio as a consequence, but it's still the lowest in the world if you take out the countries that I mentioned before, have sovereign funds and have wealth that allows them to be out of this trap. I think that's a very comprehensive debunking of the term debt crisis, so thank you for that. And actually, as a result of the narrative that's been formed, particularly around African nations and nations that are less developed, we've seen, of course, the DSSI, the World Bank, IMF and G20 Bank Initiative, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, which we've seen, of course, the postponement or deferment of the servicing of debt. The question is for me to you is, do you feel this goes far enough to address the issues that we're seeing? Well, I, I really consider this like a noble initiative in terms of the political messaging that is being sent with the DSSI initiative, which is we have to do something. But what comes out of that process, which is a G20 process, is really meaningless. The results are really quite astonishingly weak because what we end up having is sort of a postponement of some debt servicing for about, first it was one year, but you know, the most advanced negotiations finished by October, so it was less than a year. And then, you know, you have a, now an agreed inclusion of the first six months of this year, 2021, into the package. All of this is quite ridiculous because the amounts that we are talking, if you take into account the different conditionalities involved, but also the qualifications that are required to access this facility, are between 5 and $12 billion. 
uh, for Africa is about $5 billion. This is absolutely nothing in relation to the needs of the continent in terms of, you know, making uh, debt more manageable. And it's also not addressing the number one problem, which is access to liquidity. This was supposed to be an indirect way of providing some liquidity. But, you know, by providing some liquidity, postponing debt servicing, and then wanting it to be paid in a year like 2021, that is going to be as bad as 2020, it's really not helpful. And I think uh, there is a realization by the IMF that this is really a quite weak, although they were the authors of some of the technical documents, because they have been discussing debt restructuring and a new scheme to deal with sovereign debt for quite some time. And a lot of their research points in the direction that you know we need to redesign the international architecture for resolving sovereign debts. We need to do it uh, not because of the pandemic. We need to do it because there is a systemic number of problems. That includes legal jurisdictions for most foreign currencies, sovereign bonds, how to pass legislation that prevent bondholders from taking legal action, for instance. That requires also how we can avoid lengthy disputes and how we can have orderly defaults. All of these things have been on the table for some time. What we have now, fresh and new, is that the orthodoxy for macroeconomics is completely gone. There is a space for policy discussions that was not available before because all the central banks and the institutions like the IMF are proposing solutions that are not in the books, that are completely innovative, which is good. But unfortunately, most of this innovation is not touching Africa. That is the problem. Because initiatives, like you've mentioned, these innovative ones that are changing the economic landscape are not touching Africa, is there a concern on your part of a possibility of mass debt default across the continent as a result of this economic situation? Well, you see, uh, countries in Africa would need something like $500 billion to $1 trillion to actually be at par in terms of support in relation to the size of GDP with other countries elsewhere. This may sound a lot of money, but when we know that we have about 9.3 trillion US dollars that have been increased in the global debt of corporations, corporations, we can realize that, you know, if corporations need that much to survive under the current circumstances, you know, half a trillion for for a continent with 1.2 billion people should be available and should be possible. Now, people may say, where is it going to come from? Well, it can come easily from special drawing rights that are unused at the IMF, which is a mechanism that everybody has been mentioning should be the number one priority for addressing the liquidity problems and and the debt issue. But, you know, uh, the Trump administration in the US was not very favorable to such a solution and has blocked the discussions in that direction. There is a bit of hope with the transition in the US administration that maybe we can reopen this debate. But if we don't get to the alpha trillion through special drawing rights, at least we should find ways to do debt restructuring in an orderly fashion. And China has a very important role to play in that because you know they are the number one creditor. But others will have to chip in as well 
for instance, the European Union, our number one trading partner of the continent, he has not done enough because there is absolutely no additional anything in relation to programs that were established. On the contrary, there is a reuse of uh, a lot of programs that were already approved for Africa to address COVID emergencies, which means that it diminishes development priorities and puts more on the humanitarian side. So if we don't have the half trillion from the special drawing rights, we'll have to find solutions for at least 200 billion. It's not an insurmountable amount if we think about the kind of stimulus packages that are being considered elsewhere. And it is something that the international community can make a little effort to produce. Once again, that's, I think, a perfect summation of the topic itself. And actually, as a follow-up to, and actually looking forward now, if we look at the responses, of course, to the debt difficulty that many African countries find themselves in, whether it be the fact that we find ourselves in the moratorium right now, whether we see debt cancellation, that likely is to have an impact on an area that often isn't discussed, which is credit agencies, right? I think a study in 2015 by Michigan University estimated that African sovereigns in sub-Saharan Africa were paying a premium of 2.9% over the rest of the world. And actually, as you've mentioned in this interview so far, the risk perception Do you believe that African nations risk being penalized by credit rating agencies for taking advantage of these debt moratoriums? Unfortunately, the behavior of the credit rating agencies has not been consistent. I don't want to criticize them just for the fact that they are doing their job of trying to protect the yields of their uh, customers, which are uh, their constituents rather, not their customers. But I do think that they have an obligation to be consistent. What we know is that despite their incredible analytical capabilities, about only 50% of their rating is based on such evidence and data. The rest is political interpretation of risk. And this is where we have an issue because you know, there is a stigma associated with African markets that has propelled certain type of market behavior, which they should not condone without questioning, but they, they have an obligation to be a bit more transparent. And I think, you know, the fear of a downgrade credit rating is really influencing a lot of policy decisions in Africa, not only by governments, but also by the corporate sector. And I think uh, in principle, there are two reasons for rejecting the moratorium from that perspective, each with a different degree of plausibility. One group of countries does not find the offer attractive enough because of the bureaucracy and the limited access it will provide. And the second reason is significantly less plausible, but probably more interesting, politically speaking. And I think, you know, Kenya is a very good example. It's that eligible. It's about 802 million US dollars or about 0.8% of its GDP. It's one of the countries that could have benefited most from the moratorium in both absolute and relative terms. And its minister has been very clear that the SSI initiative will jeopardize the country's rating by major agencies. So they were not interested. So instead, they would increase the refinancing costs for its debt, which is really amazing. So you can see that we have induced by the credit rating agencies behaviors that are against the interests of the constituents of the credit rating agencies. They are provoking countries to go into the brink, which is not very good for business. 
And if they were doing it consistently across the board, yes, but they are not doing it with other regions. They are doing it with African economies. And you know, a lot of evidence suggests that despite the performance indicators in Africa being better than other countries and other regions, they penalize Africa. You have mentioned one such study, but there are several. And I think uh, we really have to make sure that the credit rating agency's behavior changes, and there are ways of making that happen. To discuss an area that you've alluded to a couple of times so far, African policymakers, and of course, as an institute, we are firmly behind the concept of African agency, where African policymakers must make their own decisions and come up with solutions to their own problems. What options are available to African policymakers? You've mentioned some already, concessional lending, institutional lending, and of course, countries not part of the Paris Club terms. What options are available and what are the foreign relations implications of these decisions? I think African governments have a voice if they act together, if they intervene in these uh, systemic issues in a disorganized or atomized approach, they don't carry much weight. But if they do it together, it's a different story. For instance, politically, you need a push to get into the special drawing rights discussion, but as a continent. And what we see are weaknesses in the African positions that allow for others to carry weight. And the Africans have to be consistent. If they want something very badly, they put it up front in their relationship and partnerships with others. And you you fail to see that consistency. That's one. Second, they have a lot of work to do domestically that they are not doing. For instance, the credit rating agencies can be regulated. You can't really count just on goodwill. You can have certain types of regulations without you know, disrupting that business and without giving bad signals to the market. It is possible. One way you can go about it is to make sure that the weight of different indicators is regulated by you know, central banks and monetary authorities. That's possible. Another way is to make sure that you will not allow certain credit rating agencies to intervene if they have conflicts of interest. A third possibility is to make sure that the credit rating agencies are confronted with an African interpretation of the same risk perceptions by promoting the establishment of an African credit rating agency. So there are things that they can they can do. Also to mobilize domestic resources, there is a need for African countries to really be more serious about their fiscal policies. They have not exercised all the latitude they have to increase the fiscal pressure. They have not done enough to make sure that their pension funds are properly regulated. And they are not put the stops in terms of the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, you know, misbehavior in terms of management and efficiencies. These three alone can completely turn around the fortunes in terms of how much money you can mobilize internally. And obviously, you have also to change the economy structure, and that is part of the structural transformation process. And as part of, of course, that transformation process, you hope to see FDI, right, foreign direct investment into the countries themselves. And of course, we cannot separate the economics from the politics and from the geopolitics in particular. 
And I'd love to hear your perspective in particular on how and how the geopolitics will affect people's decisions, especially over the next coming couple of years as the continent tries to recover. Well, we have certainly uh, not done very well during 2020 in two other scores that are less mentioned than the pandemic. It's like the pandemic has camouflage other problems. One is climate change related, which is the fact that we experienced in 2020 a fourth year of drought in parts of Southern Africa. We had two locust invasions in the Horn of Africa. You had uh, floods in countries that never experienced one before and twice in the same year in countries that used to have regular floods, but you know never experienced twice in the same year, like Mozambique. And not to mention the environmental stress-related conflicts in the Sahel. So you really have quite a catastrophic year from a climate perspective in Africa during 2020. And the other camouflage crisis was the deterioration of the peace and security dimensions of the continent. Certainly, you could have expected that the difficulties, socioeconomic difficulties provoked by the pandemic were going to exacerbate conflict. And that actually was, to a certain extent, responsible for part of the growth in conflict. But I would say that the majority, the bulk of the conflicts that have exploded during 2020 were related to uh, the terrorist and jihadist movements that went as far as Mozambique in terms of expansion. And I think we have not yet found a way of dealing with some of these conflicts from a continental perspective. It was supposed to be the year of silencing of the guns, according to the Agenda 2063 priorities of the African Union. And what happened was sort of the reverse. We had an increase of the presence of guns. So we we have that dimension that we cannot blame the credit rating agencies or other important partners of the continent and uh, interlocutors of the continent for It's really something that the Africans will have to find a solution by themselves. But we have to admit that there are some global dimensions to this crisis more than before. It is less ingrained into socioeconomic dimensions of the countries themselves, although that is obviously very much present, and much more dependent on global trends that have to do with the expansion of terrorism. No, completely. And actually, to come to an end of sorts and actually to ground the whole discussion in the realities of what debt means. Of course, debt results in governance difficulties for countries and them not being able to serve their populations effectively. And of course, I think the mistake that's often made is when we make debt an abstract matter that we forget about the real world effects of debt and what it can lead to on the continent as a whole. And actually, I'd love for you to speak towards that as, as we come to an end. Yeah, it's basically about uh, policy space. Countries have gained quite a remarkable freedom when we moved from structural adjustment programs in the 80s and the 90s into a focus on Millennium Development Goals. That was basically a transformation of the universal debate on development from prescriptive policies to goals. Goals you can attain with different policy routes and you can do it in a different manner. So it was quite a freedom, but that freedom uh, means very little if you don't accompany it with also fiscal space. You can have a lot of policy space, but if you don't have fiscal space, you don't go far. 
And I think that is the second freedom that we need to attain. And to gain fiscal space, countries have to manage their public resources in a much more efficient way. Part of the response, obviously, is domestic. You know, how we increase taxes, how we tax collection, basically, how we do it progressively so it doesn't affect policies that should be inclusive and respectful of diversity. But part of the response is also how we access finance in a way that is sustainable. And that's why, you know, the way we manage debt becomes extremely important. You can manage debt in such a way that despite the fact that the debt to GDP ratio is quite high, it's sustainable because you can pay, you have the opportunity to pay its servicing without affecting your structural transformation of the economy. We know a number of countries in Africa that have been able to manage that in such a way. It's the case of Morocco, it's the case of Cape Verde, it's the case of Mauritius. And until quite recently, about 10 years ago, it was the case of South Africa as well. So it is possible, but it is not a given. It is something that requires very efficient and smart leadership. I think that brings us to the end of the discussion. Thank you so much, Professor Carlos, for your insights and for answering my questions. I'm sure our listeners will be enthralled to hear all of your perspectives on the difficult topic of debt and, of course, the economic implications of COVID and the continent. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yusuf. And that brings us to an end of the first episode of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe on the podcast platform that you're listening to us on to ensure that you don't miss an episode and do leave a review as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thanks for listening to Africa Aware. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.